welcome to Scintillating Stories. In this show, we will read short stories by a variety of authors. Today's tale explores the magic that can hide inside a well-made piece of furniture. Antique Spirit by Rosie Beach Have you ever been to an antique shop? When I was little, my parents used to take me on their expeditions to find wonderful and interesting treasures for our home. The feeling that you have when you wander around these shops is entirely unique. I would be lying if I said that I was never bored or wanted to be somewhere else. But the feeling that I experienced in these odd places drew me back to them. It's very much like watching rain from underneath a shelter. It conjures a feeling of melancholy and of being surrounded by beauty. As you walk among the rubbish and the treasures, sometimes gathering the courage to touch them, emotions settle on you like dust. As an adult, if my parents bring up the idea of a trip to one of our haunts, I feel a thrill of anticipation and a bone-deep longing for what I cannot fully explain. Maybe it's the desire to feel like a small creature tiptoeing around sleeping secrets and stories. Sometimes, if you ask the people that work there, they will tell you about an object's history and who owned it. In glass cases, there are a hundred engagement rings holding married secrets in their crystalline depths. And on shelves, there are toys who remember whispered fears and hopes from little owners, now long gone. It was when I was looking for a present for my parents' anniversary that I heard the story I'm going to tell you. An old woman named Frances told me this story. There was an almost balletic manner in the way she would wrap smaller objects in brown paper and a reverence with which she handed them to their new owner. As I walked down the partitioned rooms that day, I felt a strong pang in my chest. I paused in surprise and found myself looking into the Moorcroft room. In it was a beautiful set of furniture that managed to be simple, elegant and imposing. There was a dining table with imprisoned resin glowing warmly across its surface, chairs with comfortably bowed backs and delicate blue upholstery, an intricately carved mantelpiece with spirals and stars and a beautiful wooden clock that hung on the wall. It was the clock that I felt most drawn to. The wood had a lovely grain, and the glass panel in the front revealed a swinging pendulum and weights carved to look like pine cones. On the top, I noticed that there was a carved wooden mouse peering down at me. It almost looked real with its bright eyes and carved fur. The face of the clock itself was beautifully painted in gentle pastel colours, and in between the gothic numbers grew the branches of a tree which just like the mouse, looked very lifelike, as if it was growing from the centre of the face. I stood on tiptoe to get a better look and noticed that these branches were also carved into the body of the clock, with spring leaves unfurling on ancient wood. At the base of the painted tree sat two figures. They looked like pastoralist types with delicately illustrated crooks and well-worn clothes. I wasn't sure if they were asleep or not. That was where Frances found me, staring at the strangely captivating clock. 
She came up beside me to look at it and crossed her arms with a sigh that always signals the beginning of a story. Hi, it's a lovely thing, isn't it? Completely handmade. Do you know who made it? I asked, eyes searching for some sort of date or label. Everything in this room was made and donated by Mr Moorcroft. He was our go-to restorer, you see. Such a talented man, and a kind one. She smiled at me, as if she was about to offer me a sweet. It was his favourite piece. He spent any time he wasn't working for us maintaining it. Would you like to know what he used to say about it? I nodded, already taken in by the hint of intrigue. She seemed to settle down in the space, as all storytellers do, like a bird coming back to roost. Moorcroft believed in forest spirits. He used to love how they would pop up in folklore, often as a way to explain the strange will that nature seemed to exert over us. It's said that a spirit will live in a specific tree and guard the area around it, and our story starts with such a being. It lived in a fine old walnut tree in an area of the wood that was strangely peaceful. Nothing was ever caught and killed around the tree, Creatures could find shelter there even in the wildest storms, and in the dead of winter they could still find hidden caches of nuts buried between its roots. This tree was once part of a large forest, but a village had been built on its edge, and the people had needed more and more wood for their houses, furniture and fires. As their society grew, the forest was cut back. Soon it was only a small wood beside a busy city. The spirit in the tree watched all of this, and as the wood shrank, its hatred for people grew. Now the area around the tree became a place of misfortune. Woodcutters would bury their axes in their own legs by mistake. Hunters would lose their trails, and small children would fall out of the tree itself if they dared to climb it. Then came a day when a large machine entered the wood. Men with chainsaws began felling the trees, and when they arrived at the old walnut, the spirit could do nothing to stop them. The tree spirit was trapped within the wood, furious and grieving for the loss of its roots and branches. The lumber was sold to a construction yard, whose owner, pleased to have such high-quality wood, immediately prepared to strip the walnut tree of its bark. The spirit screamed in pain and shame, but the man could not hear it. It stretched out, Searching for help, it reached this way and that way. It struggled and flailed, and then found that it could grasp objects. A worker was passing by with a toolbox, and the spirit wrenched it from his hands and sent it tumbling to the ground. The worker tripped and landed with a sickening crunch. The owner stopped stripping the tree and hurried over to check on him. The worker had a badly broken nose and had to be taken to hospital. When the owner went back to his tasks, he was horrified when a beam that was being lifted up suddenly fell, causing workers to run every which way to try and solve the problem. 
Mistakes like that kept happening throughout the day and the owner began to have a very bad feeling about the new wood. The next day, without really knowing why, he sold it for half price to a friend who made paper. While the wood was at the factory, the electrics blew out, one of the machines broke down and someone lost a finger. It was sold on again at an even cheaper price to a local hardware store. The spirit grew angrier and angrier. One day a man came into the shop. He had brown skin, a leather apron, calloused hands and an oddly thoughtful demeanour. His face looked a little like that of the poets that came to write in the forest. Something about his lively nut-brown eyes, or so the spirit thought. But he was still a human and the spirit's heart had been hardened against them. It watched hatefully as the man approached the wood. He looked it over carefully. "'Morning, Mr. Moorcroft,' called the shopkeeper. "'Good morning, Jake.' Moorcroft was too absorbed in his examinations to keep up much of a conversation. "'Where did you find this, then, Jake?' "'Oh, the walnut. "'That came in a day or two ago.' Behind him, a shelf fell off the wall with a loud crash. As Jake swore and began cleaning, Moorcroft looked up quickly and then back at the wood with an interested gleam. As he went over to help, he kept looking back at it. How much for it? What? Oh, it's been cluttering up the space. Just take it. Really? But that's good quality. You'd be doing me a favour. Call it a discount for a good customer. Moorcroft had to borrow a friend's car to take it home. On the way, one of the tyres blew out and he had to change it. The spirit seethed the whole way, hating the metal car and the driver more with every mile. When they got to the house, Moorcroft carefully lifted the wood out and carried it to his workshop. The spirit raged in indignation as they crossed the threshold, and a tin of varnish wobbled and fell, spilling everywhere. Moorcroft spared it a glance, but carried on to the workbench and set the wood down. Only then did he methodically set about cleaning up the mess. It seemed to the spirit as if every action he took was thoughtful and deliberate. Eventually he came back and stood looking intently at what had once been a tree. He did not move for quite some time and seemed to be looking beyond what was in front of him. Angrily the spirit threw a handsaw across the room, but he didn't jump. He looked even closer, and a paintbrush followed the saw. He pulled a pencil from behind his ear and began to lightly draw on the surface of the wood. As he did, he started to hum to himself. It was a gentle melody with a playful lilt to it which interrupted the spirit's rage with a powerful wave of curiosity. It had heard birdsong with all its trills and profanities, and it had heard the hum of honeybees, but this was something new. The light movements of the pencil were nothing like the bark stripper. Then, in a voice like autumn wind through dry leaves, it spoke. What is that sound? Moorcroft looked about for the voice before looking back to the wood. It's called Water in the Black Bay. But what is it? It's a song. A musical sound. Can I ask you a question? Ask. What are you? I am as old as mountains. 
born of the earth. I have been here since the beginning, and I will be here long after you crumble to dust and nourish the soil. I mean, what's your name? Name? I existed before humans told the world what it was. I have no name. Well, what would you like me to call you? If you insist on talking to me, then you may address me with respect. Give me a name that inspires that. Moorcroft thought for a moment and then went to the shelf, bringing back a book. Here, this is what some very respectable people call you. Juglanus Regia. Regia. That sounds acceptable. I could tolerate that. And you are Moorcroft. My friends call me Arthur. I shall call you Moorcroft. Moorcroft laughed and went back to work. After a while, the spirit spoke again. What are you doing, Moorcroft? I'm trying to find what you want to be. I want to be a tree again. Moorcroft fetched a little notebook and jotted something down. I want my roots to anchor me to the ground, my leaves to race towards the sky and to feel the passing of time as it washes around me. I want to be myself again. It sent a hammer clattering to the floor in its peak of emotion. Moorcroft placed his hand on the wood. I'm very sorry that you don't feel like yourself. I can't put you back in the ground, but there may be a way that I can help. It was a few moments before Regia spoke again. What could you do? I'm a carpenter. I take wood and I craft it into something else. Will you slice me into paper or trap me in the rafters of a wretched human dwelling? No, I work with the wood, following its grave, gradually uncovering its potential. I do not understand. I'll show you. He moved to another bench and carefully selected a small block of beech wood and a metal tool. Regia thought of what the tree must have been. Beech trees connect an entire forest. Their roots join together, nourishing the whole group, sending energy and water to those out of the sun. All trees benefit from the beech network. It felt sorrow rise like sap as it remembered. Moorcroft began to carve, but unlike the work of the woodcutter, the spirit could see the thoughtfulness in his movements. He began to carefully choose where to make marks. It was hypnotic. Slowly but surely, something began to emerge, as if he were brushing piled leaves away from a tiny flower. The spirit lost track of time and was surprised when he stopped. The sky outside was black now and Moorcroft yawned, but he looked satisfied. He held up the object, revealing that it had become a roosting bird, Reggie couldn't quite understand it. It was still beechwood, 
but it did indeed have the fluttering bright energy of a bird held quietly within itself. How? I followed the grain and let it guide me. Reggie tried to hold the bird and Moorcroft took his hands away to let it examine his creation. You want to do this to me? I want to find what is waiting inside you. Regia made the bird gently circle in the air as if it were flying, wooden feathers catching an updraft that wasn't there. All right, I will let you work on me, but if you displease me, I will drive your own tools into your heart. Moorcroft nodded slowly as the bird flew back to his desk. Then shall we begin tomorrow? Over the first week, the spirit inspected its new home. The workshop had a door to the rest of the house and Reggie found that it could wander a little away from the walnut wood now that it felt less frightened. It could not go too far from it, as if the wood was an anchor to stop it drifting. Everything seemed to have its place and it took pleasure in moving things around, creating a little chaos. In the evenings, Moorcroft would get a shock when his kettle appeared in his bread bin or when his side table had wandered to the bathroom. Reggie would laugh at the confused little noises he would make. It always came back to the workshop to watch him work, making rough and detailed sketches and plans. Why do you live alone? It was easier in the long run. Humans get lonely. Yes, we do. Your families are like your roots. Do you think I'm rootless? I don't know. Regia liked running water and would follow Moorcroft around when he was washing the dishes or having a bath. It was confused when it saw him without his shirt for the first time. On one side of his body, his skin was puckered and painful looking. It made patterns that it had never seen on a human being. What is wrong with your skin? Is it a kind of moss? Moorcroft shivered and moved away when Reggie poked at it. When wood burns, it goes black. When humans catch fire, it looks like this. How did you burn? He would not answer that. The next day, he told Reggie that he was ready to start carving. The spirit had to stay in the wood for this part of the process until Moorcroft could find the proper shape of the carving. It felt a shiver of fear that held itself in readiness. The wood was kept in place on the workbench with clamps and the spirit curled in on itself when it saw the chisel. Don't worry, I promise to be careful. The first cut was not as painful as the bark stripper had been, and Reggie was surprised. Moorcroft worked methodically, and soon the slight pain changed into a dull ache. It felt a little like the pain of dying leaves, and the slight shock when they fell. It was almost surprised when Moorcroft stopped. Have you finished? For today. This is a large project, so it may take weeks. Well, go as fast as you may. Don't forget what your fate will be if you displease me. Don't worry, I wouldn't forget that. 
They carried on like this for quite some time, and they both began to settle into a routine. Moorcroft got used to finding his books under the sink, but would still half-heartedly complain about it, and Regia found itself becoming accustomed to the human pattern of life. It would creep into the living room where he sat reading in the evenings and stare into the fire that warmed the room. The hungry fire spirit would sometimes talk to it. Being captured by humans is what you make of it, it said as it happily chewed on a twig. Regia told it to mind its own business and stayed away from the living room for a week. The days passed much like this for a while until one day Moorcroft looked up from carving the decorative mouse. It was a lovely day. Why don't we work in the garden? You have a garden? Reggie was shocked and excited by this revelation and followed him eagerly to the back door. Outside there was a patch of lawn and a few chairs and a table. Apart from this, the place was practically a wildflower meadow. Having been left to their own devices, weeds and brambles and flowers had grown side by side. Around the door, honeysuckle had grown rampant, and ivy crept up every wall. Regia ran excitedly around the space. Moorcroft settled in his chair and resumed whittling. The spirit rolled into a clump of old man's beard, slipped between thorny briars and scrambled up the ivy vines. Even without leaves, it still adored the bright sunshine, basking in it like a lizard. Down below, Regia saw other spirits emerging from the undergrowth and scurried down to meet them. It played with the wild, sweet brambles, wrestled with choking bracken, climbed with beautiful honeysuckle and raced with rosebay willow herb. Even though it had longed for the wilds, Regia grew tired more easily now, and the games did not distract it as they once had. It was no longer the same as these tireless plant spirits. It felt like it moved at a different pace to them. Maybe it always had. A tree can live for hundreds of years while many of these would be gone by the next winter. Regia went back to sit with Moorcroft. Don't you want to be with the others? I will return to their games later. They sat in companionable silence for the rest of the afternoon. began to gather. This was the time of year when they ran freely about the place, getting ready for their hallowed day. Spectres floated under street lamps, buffeted hither and thither by electric currents, while fairies paraded in the dusk. Brownies and goblins began to creep into the house, looking for odd jobs and scraps of food. Regia once saw some tiny elves playing in Moorcroft's shoes. To it, these types of household spirits were like mice, and Regia was a cat. It could tolerate their presence, but wasn't above chasing them for fun. Sometimes it would catch one and bring it to Moorcroft, explaining more and more about the world just outside of human sight. He listened attentively and made sketches of these fellows, but always insisted that Regia let them go afterwards. You can't be so forgiving with some, 
There are those that delight in causing harm or don't know enough not to. You would call these monsters, it told him. What do you think of them? I suppose they were useful for keeping humans away from your forest. Reggie didn't know what to say to that. Yes, once it had been glad to watch boggles and red caps chase humans away. But now the memory of their screams was too much like its own scream when the walnut tree was felled. Reggie could no longer find any pleasure in them. One particularly dark night, when the moon was hidden by clouds, Reggie heard a strange sound and went to investigate. The spirit had taken to falling into a sort of dormancy during the night, while Moorcroft wasn't around to talk to or pester. Now it slipped through the house until it came to the back window. It was broken, and climbing through were two people. Any visitors that Moorcroft usually had entered through the front door, not the window. They started to slink around the house, opening cupboards and checking drawers. They started to take things, and Reggie watched, horrified as they made their way to the workshop. They ignored the carved wood to its relief, but fear renewed itself when it saw them begin to pocket Moorcroft's tools. Reggie screamed. It sounded like a howling gale, and the intruders covered their ears. Moorcroft woke with a yell at the sound and ran to the workshop. The strangers were frightened by the sound and were beginning to panic. One of them punched Moorcroft, and they fell to fighting. Their tussle sent tools falling from the bench, and the other intruder grabbed a chisel. These things had never seemed dangerous in Moorcroft's hands, but now it looked like a weapon. The intruder flailed wildly, trying to help his fighting friend, and Regius screamed again. Moorcroft blocked the strike just in time. The second blow knocked him down. The attacker pinned him and stabbed at Moorcroft. He just missed his heart and pierced his shoulder. The carpenter screamed in pain. That was when Regia hit the attacker in the head with the nearly finished clock. After Moorcroft had secured the un- After Moorcroft had secured the unconscious thief, he called the police. The other intruder had fled through the broken window. Moorcroft had escaped the encounter with a badly cut shoulder. The police took custody of the thief and one drove Moorcroft to hospital. Reggie was left to scurry around the house, waiting impatiently for him to come back. In anticipation, it captured two brownies and a goblin and set them to cleaning the house. By the time Moorcroft arrived home, the house was spotless and Reggie welcomed him by inspecting his wound thoroughly until it was convinced that the humans had done a passable job. Reggio refused to leave his side while he recovered, insisting that he took a sliver of walnut wood with him wherever he went so that the spirit could reach him. It would bring him berries from the brambles and honey fresh from beehives, and watched while he ate. Moorcroft indulged the spirit, and could not deny that he was enjoying being coddled. Soon he was recovered, and life almost returned to normal. Reggie still moved his things about, but now it lay dormant in the bedroom with him at night, insisting that it would guard him. Moorcroft asked if its snoring was to throw off would-be attackers, and found his clothes in the bathtub as punishment the next day. Moorcroft began to repair the damaged clock, calmly reassuring Reggie that he could fix it. In the evenings, he painted the clock face, with Reggie perched on the back of his chair. 
When this is finished, I should start looking for a good home to give it to. Somewhere that you can be happy. Don't be silly, Regia sniffed indignantly. I live here now. Who knows what would happen to you if I didn't keep an eye on you? So the clock lived with Moorcroft, and when he moved, it went with him, sitting above the fireplace with a view of a much neater garden. Moorcroft took to wearing an amber necklace containing a tiny walnut leaf that he had carved from the sliver of wood that he had carried. In his old age, some people suggested that he find someone to take care of him. They suggested that he moved in with a relative, but he would just smile. There's nowhere I would get better care than my own home, he told them. When the visitors that suggested this to him left, they often found sharp objects hidden in their shoes. Moorcroft lived very happily to the end of his days. He was buried at the edge of the old graveyard. It's peaceful up there, and close to the woodland. I noticed a couple of years ago that a walnut sapling has begun to grow on his grave. I don't think it will ever be moved. Is that all true? I asked. Maybe. I like to think it is. It's a beautiful clock either way. I looked back at it for a long moment. You know, I think it's the perfect gift for my parents. Well, that's wonderful. Let me go and get the manager. As we walked away, I could have sworn that I heard someone humming. was first published in Jabberwocky magazine. You can find more stories like this at jabberwocky-mag.wixsite.com. This has been a Yorick Radio production.